A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 15th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Labour Party met for its 71st conference in the Mansion House uh, this weekend, promising a new deal to deliver for working people in Ireland. Because the time has come again for a new deal. To make Ireland a fairer, kinder, better place. And the Labour Party will lead that change. Alan Kelly's first leader speech to a national conference promised to see Labour returned to government. You see, we have served before and we will do so again. The party has taken a right bruising in recent years following a disastrous coalition for it with Fine Gael when Labour took the blame for austerity and everything from water charges to property tax and the housing crisis, all of which came under the stewardship of Alan Kelly as a government minister. We don't just talk about it, you see. We make it happen. And that is our mission. And it is never easy. But it's what distinguishes us as a party. As a party, Labour's poll ratings are far from their heyday. Yesterday's Sunday Times tied them on 3% with the Social Democrats. I'm a Social Democrat and a proud, proud Irishman who aspires to deliver a united Ireland. But I know what comes first for me. At this moment, I believe that our biggest priority for everyone on this island should be getting getting a home, getting the medical treatment you need and providing for your children. Labour's dismal poll rating stemmed from its last experience in government and votes for the left going to Sinn Féin, amongst others. Sinn Féin now 16 points ahead of its nearest rival on 37%. Can we trust the moral compass of those who aspire to govern with us because the tone of political debate really, really matters now. Some, peop- some parties in the current government think they have a right to always govern while others in opposition go around arrogantly acting like their ascension to high office next time is just inevitable. The Labour Party leader, Alan Kelly. Let's speak uh, to local Labour Party TD, Jed Nash, who's the Labour spokesperson on finance. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Labour talking somewhat confidently over the weekend uh, about a return to government. 
But with whom, if you're ruling out Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? We haven't ruled uh, anybody out, and it would be really unwise, uh, Michael, three years, uh, probably more than three years ahead of the next general election to uh, rule any combination out. Uh, Irish politics, as you know only too well, and, and from your reading of opinion polls, is very, very fluid at the moment. I mean, we saw just a matter of months before the 2020 uh, general election that Sinn Féin, for example, lost half of their council seats uh, and then had a very impressive performance in the general election just a, a few short months uh, later. So we're not ruling anything uh, in or out. Um, the people of Ireland haven't spoken yet. Uh, there's only so much we can, I think, conclude from uh, opinion polls. We haven't had the contest yet, and we're very unlikely to have a, a national electoral context contest anytime soon. But what we can draw, I think, from our experience over the last few months is that when we are at our very best, with good candidates working hard on the ground, with good profiles, and presenting a good social democratic alternative to Sinn Féin and to the parties of the centre-right in government, we can win, as we did in the by-election with Ivana Bacic. Uh, just a few short months ago. Okay, was that the support uh, for the Labour Party uh, that resulted in you getting that seat or was it more the candidate? I think it was a combination, frankly, of, of, of three things. Um, an historic uh, level of support for the party traditionally in that uh, constituency. We had a seat for many, many uh, decades, going back generations, in fact, in Dublin Bay South, uh, up until Kevin Humphreys uh, lost his seat in 2016 and tried to win it back uh, in 2020. So there was only a short gap uh, in terms of not having a seat in that constituency. But also as well, yes, I mean, the party support uh, obviously in Dublin is, is significant and in Leinster is more significant than it would be around the country. But also there's no doubt about it, uh, Ivana Batchik was a tremendous candidate, but somebody who has mm. proudly worn the Labour Party emblem for all of our political life since the early 1990s, when it might have been easier uh, for somebody like Ivana to... Uh, join some alternative political party uh, or indeed uh, contest Trinity uh, Shannon's election campaigns as an independent. So nobody mm-hmm. represents the values of the party better than Ivana as represented the party uh, you know, as an organisation for more years than I care to remember and has done it proudly. Okay, and Roisin Shortall, a uh, fine example, I suppose, uh, of exactly what you're saying Ivana Bakic didn't do, left the Labour Party uh, and went on to form the Social Democrats. Uh, would there be a combined vote of 6% if you were to merge? Um, I, I think traditionally um, the Labour Party would obtain, even in its worst days, uh, 10% of the vote. But the political system and political support across the spectrum, Michael, is very, very fractured at the moment. Uh, there's significant support, for example, for independence that draws away from uh, the centre-right support that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael might traditionally uh, obtain. The left vote is particularly fractured. The centre-left uh, usually represented um, or historically represented almost exclusively by the Labour Party could depend on 10% of the vote. So the combined vote of the Labour Party and the sockdowns at the moment is about 10%. And if you include the Greens, it's about 15%. Uh, and it's our job to lead the centre-left uh, and to uh, bring about change from that perspective. We're not Sinn Féin. We're not a, a narrow nationalist mm-hmm. party. Neither are we Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. We're a social democratic party in the European tradition that believes in public services, believes in decent pay, uh, and believes in uh, quality uh, uh, public uh, services. Uh, and, and that people will, and that people, tax. and that people will vote for your policies. Uh, and that come the real poll, uh, such uh, you'll do better than that three percent yesterday. Well, I think we will. Of course, when you look at national polls, um, there are parts of the party, uh, and not even just. You know, 
Apache, small parts of the country, vast swathes of the country, particularly in the West, uh, where uh, uh, where the party does not have representation and historically hasn't. Our, our support is very concentrated at the moment in, in large urban areas, in places like Louth, in Dublin, in Wexford, uh, in Kildare, uh, in uh, parts of Cork. So uh, national polls don't always represent the true strength of the Labour Party. I mean, we have a great team here in our own constituency, four councillors, Bill Smith, uh, Michelle Hall, Elaine McGinty, Fickham, O'Brien and myself, working day in, day out, give the best representation, uh, representation of great integrity, we believe, uh, for the people of our area. And if we can replicate that across the country, uh, then I think we'll do much better uh, in the next general election, the polls would suggest. How would the Labour Party reward frontline healthcare workers? Uh, Alan Kelly, in his speech, was saying all of our or all of our neighbours have done it so far. And he said only this shambolic government could mess it up. What would Labour do? OK, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk about this um, and what kind of pandemic bonus or pandemic dividend uh, that should be drawn uh, by workers. And by the way, we're not just talking here about uh, frontline uh, health service workers and frontline public service workers. Alan went out of his way, quite rightly, to acknowledge the role that key workers across our society have played security guards, cleaners, shop workers, transport workers. Uh, the list is not exhaustive, but we know who they are. And the best way actually of rewarding them is through a living wage and decent working conditions through trade union rights. That's the way that we actually improve people's lot in life and people's standard of living and their opportunities. Um, in terms of the public service, we had uh, we were the first out of the traps last year to say that there should be uh, a cash reward as it were uh, for those who are working in the uh, public service and he did say in his speech on Saturday that only this government could botch that and mess that up I mean this is routine it happened in France months ago it's happened in the UK uh, a small you know relatively modest cash bonus um, should not be beyond the ken of how much government. I don't know why they are still talking about it uh, I think it would depend we don't know because we don't have access to the figures but a few hundred euros um, as a modest um, recognition uh, of the uh, work that role that they have played, but also it goes beyond that, Michael. Sorry, because I don't think we can just talk about which cash. figures do and, not and have access why. to. Which which figures do not have access to? In terms of what this would cost, the trade unions do, and the government does. Uh, my information is they actually haven't met uh, in quite a number of weeks to discuss this. There was one meeting a few weeks ago. We have said ourselves we would not put a label on this or say what precisely this would be, because that is a matter for the trade unions representing nurses, healthcare assistants, doctors, radiographers, lab technicians, and so on. Lab technicians, by the way, who will be going on strike very, very soon because of the poor way that they are treated. That should be the emphasis on on, on the health service. Decent terms and conditions for them going forward. Not just this kind of narrow analysis that we need, you know, one single cash bonus payment uh, for uh, people who work in the health service. Of about two or, two, two or three hundred euro, is it? I don't know uh, what that should be, uh, and uh, I'm not prepared to define what that would be mm. because I don't have all of the figures. And I don't have well, the, the, the nurses were looking for 10 days' that. holidays. Uh, I mean, I think you, you'd want to up that offer if that was an offer you were going to make. That's not entirely accurate. Um, there was a submission made to the Labour Court by the public sector trade unions uh, as an open opening negotiating position. Uh, that's not always where you end up. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork, as is always the case, forward to the Labour Court when they are trying to uh, manage a process. Um, so that was one that I think uh, the media in particular focused on. Uh, I don't think anybody's looking for 10 days uh, additional uh, annual leave. But what we are looking for in the Labour Party is to bring us up to the EU norms, Michael, that would mean we should have additional bank holidays, public holidays over the next three years. And that's one way as well of recognising the contribution that workers workers make and workers have made 
across society and bringing us through the pandemic and bringing us to this point. Okay, Uh, we're in uh, the middle of a a fourth wave and it's some way to go. Uh, I see some American academics suggesting there could be as many as 12,000 cases a day come uh, late December. Uh, So an awful lot. Uh, left in uh, this particular wave of the virus. Neffet is suggesting uh, that COVID certs should be expanded uh, to other areas, uh, whether that's hairdressers or or gyms or whatever. In Austria, there's a national lockdown on people who don't have COVID certs, and it seems to be the same in parts of Germany. Uh, How would Labour manage the current crisis? Um, well, the, the, the first thing to be said, Michael, is um, that there are only certain sectors of our economy where um, and, and our society that the uh, digital COVID service can be applied to, uh, and they are the areas covered by the existing law, and that, for example, is the hospitality sector. The first thing I would say is that um, we expect the hospitality sector to do a better job, quite frankly, uh, than they appear to be doing at the moment in terms of checking COVID certs. Um, because they their first job should be to keep themselves open um, by keeping everybody safe, their customers and their staff. And we've all experienced over the last few weeks establishments that we might go into uh, where certs are not being checked and people, I think, are voting uh, with their with their feet. And I would implore the hospitality sector, bars, restaurants, hotels, cafes, to do the kind of checking that is expected of them and that they're required to do under law. And I do know that... Um, inspectors were active in the draw area, for example, on, on Saturday, Saturday night, uh, checking that establishments um, in certain parts of the town were um, applying uh, the law. Um, what we would like to see at the moment to keep everybody safe is an expediting of the national booster program. Uh, Michael uh, Alan Kelly called for this in the Dáil last week. Um, NIAC appear to be dragging their feet on this. We have sufficient supplies. Uh, of uh, the mRNA uh, vaccinations. Uh, They should be rolled out as quickly as possible to keep um, everybody safe. The situation at the moment is extremely grim. We have about 8,500 cases registered over the weekend and nearly 600 people in hospital, 106 of those are in ICU or health services under um, extreme... The HSE boss talking about severe illness in hospitals. Uh, Would you uh, agree with this uh, suggestion from NEFA to expand uh, the COVID certs uh, that you'd need a cert to do most things? Well, we can't do that at the moment without a a change uh, of law. Um, That's fairly easily dealt with, isn't it? But uh, it's a very significant move uh, in terms of our society. Uh, and I would tread very, very in, in the same in the uh, same way that the law was introduced uh, for hospitality, uh, we could introduce laws so that it would apply to other places. Would you support such you, a move? You could, and that would be a matter for the doll. Uh, we haven't seen any presentation. Well, what's your opinion on it? Would you like to see that happen? I would be reluctant uh, Why? at the moment. Um, I'd be reluctant because uh, I, primarily what we want, like not not not, not every um, scenario, um, I think Michael would demand uh, the presentation of a digital COVID cert. Mm. I mean. You know, if you're working uh, in a uh, safe, controlled environment in a workplace, it should not be required if people are keeping their distance uh, and you know managing the regulations that are already uh, in place. Well, they're doing it so, in Austria, uh, I, I, they're doing I, it in parts of Germany, and people will say, I'm, I feel far safer sitting in a, a restaurant uh, at least uh, two yards away from somebody than I do in a treadmill in a gym with them working out and sweating and God knows. Mm-hmm. Um there may be these discussions uh, over the next period of time uh, about the extension of digital COVID. So I would be reticent at the moment uh, and we make our decisions based on evidence. We haven't seen any evidence presented by 
Neffet or indeed anybody else as to why that should happen at the moment. Um, and I would tread very, very carefully because, look, you know, we have significant legislation mm. on the statute books at the moment that uh, imposes necessary, necessary restrictions in the interest of public health uh, on our citizens. Uh, and any move uh, in that direction, again, I would tread very carefully. Okay, and what about uh, people uh, who are working alongside uh, people who have not been vaccinated or won't get vaccinated? Uh, should they be protected? Um, we've had this conversation on the programme um, before. Um, the vaccination programme in Ireland is operated on the basis of you know informed consent. Um, there is no requirement. It's not compulsory. Um, as much as I would like to see 100% of the population um, understand and accept the science uh, and take the vaccination to protect them and protect their family members and their colleagues, nobody can impose that um, on them. Um, and that is putting it diplomatically unfortunate and that makes everybody I think uncomfortable uh, it's not mandatory there is no plan there are no plans for this government of the state to introduce compulsory vaccination um, and until that's the case uh, and I don't believe that ever will be the case um, regardless of what the public health situation would be then that's where we're at. Okay, well, COVID uh, is going to be with us uh, through the winter uh, and it's not the only thing to be concerned about. People are very concerned about energy bills and the Labour Party uh, falling in line with others suggesting uh, that uh, the VAT rate should be cut uh, on certain fuel. Uh, Does that not fly in uh, the face of having a a carbon tax or or trying to tackle climate action? No, not at all. Um, If that were the case, the European Commission wouldn't have greenlit European Union member states to take whatever action is necessary this winter to try and reduce the cost of living and reduce the uh, cost of energy bills for hard-pressed householders. Um, There are a number of parties, including our own, who've been calling for this for quite some time. Uh, We're dealing with the finance bill committee stage this week in the Dáil, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And I've proposed an amendment to reduce that from the current 13.5% down to 9%, which is the lowest it possibly can be uh, under European law in Ireland. Um, that will give families a break. This is a short-term measure uh, to acknowledge the real impact that um, the uh, increasing price of uh, fuel and energy is having uh, on the ability of families to make ends meet. Um, we timeline this to next June. Um, VAT receipts uh, have grown enormously over the last few months as the economy has got back to a kind of normality. There is the fiscal space, if I can describe it, uh, to allow government to do that, uh, to give uh, families uh, a break. We've also as well argued, of course, in our own alternative budget proposals, Michael, to further extend the household benefits package and to introduce what we call a carbon credit, um, which would be worth about €200 a year to families who wouldn't qualify uh, for the household benefits package uh, or wouldn't qualify for um, any other any fuel events, for example, um, government rejected that, uh, but we were floating that again in the context of the committee stage of the finance bill to give families a break. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. As always, uh, that's uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, uh, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and Eastmeath. Michael Reed on LMFM. The UK's uh, chief negotiator on Brexit, uh, David Frost, has said he wants to give negotiations uh, with uh, the EU more time. And it seems as though the risk of the UK triggering Article 16 of the withdrawal agreement is not as intense as maybe it once was. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Is that a a few moment, a sigh of relief? Well, no, not actually. Um, 
if it's that they don't have to withdraw, use Article 16 because much more significant changes are going to happen, that's fine. But if it's uh, a watering down of the UK government's position, then we're worried. I mean, let's be absolutely clear about this. The, the, the protocol is utterly unacceptable to unionism. You'll have a great difficulty finding a single unionist prepared to come onto your programme to defend it. It's toxic, it's damaging the economy, it's damaging our constitutional position. And if this is a, a, the first stage to demolition, great, but certainly we're not going to uh, accept uh, protocol light or anything like that. Mm. Is there any point to these talks, in actual fact, if uh, there is uh, this red line uh, about the European Court of Justice? Uh, I think uh, the EU and Maris Sefcovic last week made it clear that that cannot change. Well, if it can't change, that's just unfortunate. But at the end of the day, uh, how many times and how many variations do we say the protocol has to go? The protocol is unnecessary. It, it creates a border down the Irish Sea. It wouldn't be acceptable within the Irish Republic, and it wouldn't be acceptable in any country in Europe. You can't have a situation where there are border controls within a country. Sorry, period. Uh, and therefore... Uh, unionism will not accept it and indeed as you know the four main unionist leaders met and made it mm. absolutely clear this is not on it does not have consent of the majority population of Northern Ireland Yes we did hear that uh, but your own party has climbed down has it not uh, I think uh, we were talking about uh, elections being called uh, towards the end of last month Yes, well, that was predicated on uh, legislation being introduced into Westminster on the Irish language. That hasn't as yet happened. That's been delayed. And we said that when the government was going to deliver the nationalist demands in the new decade, new approach, well, at that stage, we were away. we were not going to continue to run Stormont whilst uh, the protocol remained in place. So there's a bit, a bit of a hiatus, but, you know, make absolutely no bones about it. We are determined to see the end of this protocol. We are determined to restore position within the United Kingdom as, a, as an ordinary trading partner. Would you tolerate a border between Donegal and the rest of the Irish Republic? And the answer is no, you wouldn't, because that would damage the constitutional position of Donegal and its economy. And therefore, it's, it's, it's an absolute no-brainer that unionists are against this. And I don't know how many different ways I can uh, bring to the mm. table to say this, but it's not all. Mm. Why is it not on? I mean, many people say you're getting the best of both worlds and business generally in Northern Ireland is supportive of the protocol. Well, first of all, it's costing our economy £850 million a year uh, because of all the extra bureaucracy. Secondly, we haven't even seen a tenth of the implications of protocol. As the various derogations unwind, you will find that this will dig deeper and deeper into the economy and the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. So therefore, we have to head this off at the past now, because when all of the protocol's uh, uh, articles of, of are introduced into Northern Ireland, there will be profound impact on our way of life. But regardless of all of that, we are an integral part of the United Kingdom. Mm. This detaches us from the rest of the UK and therefore is completely unacceptable and would not be acceptable in any other country in Western Europe. And when you say it would have a profound impact on your way of life, what does that mean? Well, it means that the vast bulk of our goods and services come 
from the rest of the United Kingdom. It means there would be border checks on, on all a huge range of items, including medical products, food, etc. They would have to be checked, even though these are goods that have been coming into Northern Ireland for decades. Uh, without any but didn't problem. the EU concede on a lot of that? Yeah, well, the EU can, uh, and we would hope that would happen, but it still means that we are being treated fundamentally okay. different from the rest of the United so, Kingdom. So, so that's not an argument anymore. It wouldn't have a profound impact on your life, in other words. There, certainly there would be, I suspect, there would be various derogations. But that's not the point. The point but, is but, that Northern Ireland is a okay. part of the United Kingdom. But you said it would have a profound impact on the way people in Northern Ireland live. Uh, the EU has bent over backwards and conceded on all of those issues that you had concerns about. So that's no longer the case. It's a question of nationality and identity now, isn't it? I think that's right. It is. And this is being done for 6% of our trade. Only 6% of the goods that come into Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom eventually end up in the Irish Republic. Mm. So the simple simple issue is uh, encourage those goods to come in via, uh, via Dublin uh, and uh, introduce a trusted trader status type mm-hmm. model to ensure that none of those goods, no other goods leak into the public. 94% of the goods are unaffected, but they have to be checked. And that's the point we're making. We, it's, it's, it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. If the EU are genuinely concerned about cross-border trade, there's other ways of doing this, and that hasn't happened. Okay, but... If the protocol stays in place with all of these concessions that uh, Europe has offered, what difference would it actually have uh, on uh, the way people live in Northern Ireland? Will people be going around, walking around, wondering if uh, they're British or Irish or what they are? And if so, how would that be the case? But, but, but that's not the issue. The issue is... Would people even are, notice, though? We are being controlled by a foreign body with, uh, with our, our laws set by a foreign court and we are detached from the rest of our country. I mean, this is absolutely fundamental constitutional issues. I mean, we just can't tolerate this. Well, you're being given access to the single market. Is there not a a quid pro quo for that? I mean, do you not expect that there would be some system of oversight? Well, would Donegal accept it? And that's the question I keep asking you, Michael. Would Donegal accept this? Well, Donegal is a member of the European Union. But Donegal would not, if, if a situation arose in the Irish Republic, mm. would a part of the Irish Republic accept this devalued constitutional position as part of the Irish Republic? Of course it wouldn't. And this, this uh, protocol has got the capacity to grow and to continue to erode our position within the United Kingdom. I said, Michael, we're not Ireland's lost acre. We are an integral part of a different country. Are you Britain's lost acre? Because it's the British government who put you in this position. It's the British government who negotiated this deal. Yes, and it's now our own government who realise they've made a drastic mistake. And, I mean, this Article 16, by the way, is not an outside piece of legislation. It's an integral part of the protocol, which is there to protect both jurisdictions should things go badly wrong. And as the implications of the protocol have rolled out, people are realising, we've made a dreadful mistake here and we have to get this situation resolved and resolved quickly. It doesn't appear to be the case, though. It, It appears to be... Uh, a, a, a war of words between uh, the political parties uh, on the unionist side. Uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, the view of uh, people who seem to be generally supportive of this, who think that uh, they're getting the best of both worlds, business very supportive of it, uh, and the DUP nose-diving in the polls. 
Well, actually, first of all, Michael, read your recent polls. That's not the case. I don't place a huge degree of store by polls, but certainly the recent poll has shown that the DUP have, have increased by five percentage points over this last three months. It's emerged as a major unionist party once again, and the only party that can beat Sinn Féin at the next election. So I don't hold to that particular view. But the point is, Michael, I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll do something from it. You go and try and find a unionist elected representative prepared to come on to your show, one of the biggest in the Irish Republic, to defend the protocol. I wish you well on that one, mm. because I've never seen unity like it. And the reality is you can't impose something on the people of Northern Ireland if the majority community don't want it. And we don't want the protocol. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, I'm not sure how a, a solution can be found, uh, but obviously uh, it's a bone of contention to say the least as things stand and could turn out to be something very more serious than that in time to come. Thanks as always, though, for joining us. That's uh, Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. A lot of calls coming to us uh, today. Most of them uh, seem to be about uh, the Labour Party. Good few about COVID, actually. One about the Irish team from Claire, who says, Good morning, Michael. Don't forget, uh, huge congratulations uh, to Stephen Kenny on his great achievement with the Irish team. The begrudgers are silent, she says. Thank you, Claire, uh, in County Meath. Uh, Deirdre and Kells, very worried about how the hospitals are going to cope as a result of the rise in COVID cases. Maybe people who are not vaccinated should pay the price by being put into lockdown. I'm doing everything I can do, everything I'm told. It's not fair on the healthcare workers. So the government should be much stricter also on the vaccine certs. So they should be needed to get in anywhere, be it shops, gyms, hairdressers, beauty salons and so on. Uh, interesting actually, Deirdre, uh, they're doing that in Austria and it's mad to think that somebody could come up to you, a policeman could come up to you in Austria and ask you if you have a COVID cert. If you have, he'd say thank Thank you very much. If you don't, he could arrest you. Uh, Liz is in Drada. She's fed up with the number of shops that are not refilling sanitizer containers. You can go to sanitize your hands, she says, and lots are just empty. It's crazy when you look at the figures. There should be checks on that, says Liz. Say it to the shops uh, or maybe think about not going into them. I think uh, there is a problem there and I've heard a lot of people say that as well. Liz. James is in Navin. He says he heard me mention the figure of 12,000 COVID cases a day and says if that does happen, the hospitals will be overflowing with patients and will not be able to cope. He wonders if the government is making plans to cope with the scenario in the event that it does materialise, adding that we do not want a situation that we saw in other countries at the start of the pandemic when doctors were being forced to choose who to give an ICU bed to and who not to, or a ventilator as the case may be. James can't understand why they're not imposing some restrictions now. He says he agrees we have to try and live with the virus but if the hospitals can't cope, something is going to give. Well, the NEFIT uh, or the uh, Cabinet Subcommittee on COVID is meeting uh, this evening and uh, they will be looking at the advice from NEFIT and we'll be hearing about more recommendations and possibly the extension of COVID certs and masks and working from home uh, and other issues like that. We'll talk more about that later in the programme, I hope. Noel says uh, the Labour Party are great at telling us about the work they are doing on the ground, but still we never see a politician at our doors uh, unless there's an election. Uh, thanks, uh, 
uh, Noel, for your WhatsApp message to the programme uh, this morning. Margaret says, Jed Nash and Alan Kelly must have very short memories and must think that uh, the people have even shorter ones. We remember the last time Labour was in government with Fine Gael. They voted for the house tax when people were on their knees, for which you get nothing. And Joan Burton changed the pension criteria, which mainly affects women. Just letting them know we haven't forgotten, even if they have. Thank you, Margaret. Somebody else about Labour uh, asking if uh, uh, if they've uh, changed uh, their mind uh, or would they bring in water charges. Thanks uh, for that. Paddy Duffy says the Labour Party may be happy to delude themselves about their record in government from 2011 to 16, but our people are not deluded. If they want to have any credibility, they have to state that they will not go back into government with Fine Gael under any circumstance, as on paper they should be diametrically opposed to them politically. Then they have a chance of recovering their votes. Nothing less will do, says Paddy. Ray says, how on earth do they think uh, that token gestures of increased COVID certs in certain establishments will curb the rise in the number of infections? Some drastic measures will only curb the increase. It's no coincidence, Ray says, that the opening of nightclubs and pubs and restaurants trading almost uh, the way they did in 2019 has caused this current problem. The current advice by Neffet won't put a dent in any of these numbers, says Ray in his text. And thank you to everybody who's been in touch so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening earlier, you'd have heard Jim Wells of the DUP tell us that really at this day, all of this fuss about Article 16 and uh, the withdrawal agreement has nothing to do with trade or anything like that. It's down to national identity and they just want uh, the protocol gone. Let's uh, hear a different view now. Declan Farron, a spokesperson with Border Communities Against Brexit, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Declan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. In fact, you don't just have a different view on this. You'll be out protesting on Saturday. You're to hold protests along the border at five different locations uh, this weekend. That's correct. Um, I think it, it um, people along the border, I think in this past year, were happy that it, it, they had seen uh, the, the threat to a hard border that was uh, initially uh, about to be reimposed upon us. So we had seen that that whole uh, issue dissipate and that we had uh, we were confident that we wouldn't see a hard border. Now with this recklessness that's going on with the British government and dishonesty really from agreeing to sign the agreement and now, and now backtracking on that, as most people can see, that there is that threat back there again that we could see a, a hard border. And obviously nobody who lives along that border or works or socialises along that border and has done throughout their lifetime wants to see that happen again. So I think it's time that we uh, said to the British government, look at back off from doing what you're trying to do. This is dishonest. It's, un- it's, it's unbelievable, in fact, to think that they would even contemplate doing it. And what if they don't do it? Uh, what would the upshot of that be, given uh, the views in loyalist political parties? Well, I mean, <clears throat> let's face it, um, the main unionist party, the DUP, were the main instigators of, of Brexit on this island, and indeed... Uh, funded money through their channels to, to, for the mm. uh, Brexiteers in London to, to spend advertising for it and all of that. So, I mean, they brought this upon us. We warned at the time that there would be consequences for not being able to continue to have a one economic uh, island of Ireland uh, as we've had for the last 20 years and that it was always going to be difficult. The, the, in trying to close almost 300 border crossings as against having checks at the airports and the ports 
which many of which were there in the first place, and which have now been, many of them have been mitigated now again by the European Union's willingness to try and find a, a compromise. Um, so they've got to face up to that and to, and to say to their own supporters, there is no other way to do this. It must be done this way. And, uh, you know, people... Mm. But is it a winnable argument that you're making? Uh, I mean, it's a sensible, logical argument, but is it a winnable argument given the position that uh, the DUP, in fact, the four unionist parties have taken on the protocol? They want it gone. They're going to campaign on it uh, in May's election or the election, whenever it takes place, if uh, they collapse Stormont uh, before them. But let's say it's May. each will campaign on the basis that they will not take their seats uh, if uh, the protocol is still in place. What have you got then? You've got no power sharing. What does that mean for Northern Ireland? Well, that's not a given that that case would be won. For example, many of the business institutions, uh, the firemen, uh, farmers' union, uh, the fishermen's union, many businesses are doing well because of the protocol. And uh, I think that it's... You know, it could be foolish of the DUP to Mm. push many of their supporters into a situation where they have to vote for something that is going to leave it harder for them to feed their families and to pay their bills and all of that. So let's see how that goes. I'm not so sure that they'd be that confident that they'd win that argument, but even with their own supporters. Mm. Well, who would their supporters vote for if that's uh, what all of the unionist parties are campaigning on? You know, uh, I mean, I know it's a, a terrible conversation, uh, but there's no obvious good solution to all of this. No, I think that's the result. That is Brexit. That's what Brexit is. It, it, it was never something that this island was going to uh, come out of well. Uh, we are that from the start. There was no thought given by the British government or indeed the Tory party or the ERG to what the consequences would be for people who live here. But it's got to be, uh, it's got to be made clear to the British government that um, certainly the Irish government, the European Union, and indeed very vocally lately the American government are seeing the seeing it in plain sight. We cannot reimpose a hard border on this island, and that's what doing away with the protocol would mean. Obviously, the, the, these talks have taken has been going on now for five years, and after all, it's been signed and agreed. I mean, they're now in the position of saying, "Oh well, we want a change. We'll be agreed because." Unionist parties don't like what's there. Okay, well, we, parties, we've come sure very close to it. Uh, they seem to have back. They seem to have backed back uh, a little bit, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to trigger Article 16. Uh, it's still uh, an option, as David Frost uh, has indicated. Uh, if triggering Article 16 means that there would be a hard border on the island of Ireland, what do you think that means? Is it the end of the peace process? In other words. Um, well, certainly, it's it's, a, it's it's probably the end of the Good Friday Agreement. In, in so far as uh, it's it's implicit in that that it would never be a hard border on this island again, um, and that's you know that was so hard won. Twenty years of being able to cross that border without any interference whatsoever. Businesses thrived, communities thrived who in the past had been at the end of the road, really, uh, on both sides of the border where the road went nowhere and roads were closed and all of that. So mm. that's something we, we are very determined is not shall not be allowed to happen. And I think people are exercised again on the issue as they were some <clears throat> back a couple of years back when people were out on the street and saying this cannot happen, it cannot be allowed to happen, it should not be allowed to happen. The American government, the European Union, mm. the Irish government and all of the pressure to come to bear on those people to say, you cannot do this. There has to be a way around it. And the European Union have been very 
forward in their thinking and trying to mitigate the issues that are mm. causing the problems. Um, and let's face it, many people I talk to don't have a whole lot of problem with it. Businesses, as I say, are thriving. Yeah. We see mm. examples of it every other day. We see a thousand mm. jobs being created now. And, and with all of the concessions, I mean, this was the point that we were putting to Jim Wells earlier on, with all of the concession, concessions that uh, the EU has offered, uh, it really won't make any difference to anybody's life in Northern Ireland uh, if the protocol remains in place. Uh, and it is, as he conceded then, uh, a matter of national identity. Uh, and that is what is at the nub of this, which is uh, an argument that seems impossible to win. Well, I mean, the, the, the bottom line on that is there are a lot of people on this island, uh, north and south, who have their own identity too, and they didn't want to force these issues upon unionism. Unionism, uh, many of them brought this upon themselves, and it, they should not be allowed, the tail should not be allowed to wag the down on them to tell us that we have to have a hard bordering in and to do with the protocol. That simply should not be allowed to happen. Okay. We leave it there for the moment, Declan. Thank you indeed. At three o'clock, Ed, give us uh, the, because um, you're in Carrick Arnon, aren't you, uh, on Saturday? Give us uh, the five sites, if you would. Uh, sorry, they're, they're all listed up on, I think the best thing, they're all listed up on our Facebook page, right from Derry, right down to, to Carrick Arnon, and it's at three o'clock on Saturday. And we we'll ask people to come out and support us because uh, we do not never want to go back to the issue for hard border again and for families and communities who have suffered that. It's definitely a non starter. Okay, well, I'm sure many of our listeners will see you at uh, the Flurry Bridge at three o'clock on Saturday. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Declan Farren, spokesperson with Borders uh, Against uh, Brexit. Now, let me get you some more comments. Uh, we'd uh, text uh, from somebody who says COVID isn't going to go away because people are not following the law. I know of some people who have not got COVID or they haven't got the COVID vaccine, uh, and they've taken a photo of someone else's COVID jab and gone into restaurants with it. Uh, their, their COVID cert, obviously. Uh, I think people should be asked for both identification as well as COVID details. I suppose you'll always get it, won't you? Um, uh, thanks uh, for telling us uh, that. Uh, somebody uh, in touch uh, saying uh, there's a health food shop and a coffee shop near me and the staff aren't wearing masks or asking for COVID certs. Thank you indeed, uh, Bernie, for that uh, particular message. Uh, I, I think a, a local restaurant actually uh, was uh, threatened with uh, closure over the weekend uh, because they seem to be taking a principled position against asking for COVID certs, whatever that is, a principled position against asking people uh, to show that they're acting in line with uh, the public health guidelines. Uh, COVID certs should be used in bingo halls, says uh, another caller. Thank you indeed. Uh, thanks actually to everybody who has been in touch. We'll come to more of those comments a little bit later on in the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Next to a remarkable story, or a story I think is remarkable. Anyhow, I've a feeling, uh, though, that it won't seem all that remarkable to the members of uh, the Sea Point Golf Club. There's a lot to the story, but the part that I find remarkable is that the company that has just recently taken ownership of uh, the club is refusing to talk to us about it. It really seems remarkable to me that Car Golf says it is about to invest €1 million Euro in Sea Point now that it has taken ownership, but doesn't want to take questions from us about it. Other perhaps is that it has engaged a PR company to get publicity about its acquisition of Sea Point, but Car Golf doesn't want to talk to this programme about its golf club. We asked 
Cargolf a week ago if they could make themselves available to us for an interview. Our repeated requests went unanswered once we said we wanted to talk about how much they had actually paid to take ownership of the club. Well, that was just one of the questions that we would like answered. The club's chairperson, Jim McMorrow, appears to be unavailable to us as well. That really isn't a great surprise given the level of debt the club was driven into in recent years and how an outside entity was allowed to come in and buy the club from under the members' feet. Wasn't it Oscar Wilde who said, golf is a good walk spoiled? Well, if you want a good walk and a game of golf at the same time, Seapoint is second to none. The course lies on an idyllic setting, straddling Termenfecken Beach, walk the 7,150 yards or four miles and take in the majestic views of Ireland's coastline. This Lynx course is on a 300-acre site. It has its own clubhouse. It hosts two meeting rooms. It has its own restaurant, bar and golf shop. It is a local treasure. It was the property of the members. Now it is not. The members have lost their shares in Seapoint. Car Golf owns the club outright now. It might be hard to believe, but... This club has been run into the ground, incurring huge amounts of debt. Debt mounted on top of debt and eventually the club's debt soared to a colossal €3.6 million. Euro. The debt was sold by the club's bank to a vulture fund, Cerberus, and Cerberus then sold that debt to Car Golf. This gave Car ownership of Seapoint. It was a deal that saw Carr take ownership of the club for next to nothing, and fair play to them. But the question here is, why was the Carr bid accepted by Cerberus, while a bid by the club was rejected? And then there was that other question that we wanted to ask Carr Golf. Remember the reason we invited them to be interviewed on this programme? How much did Carr Golf actually pay in order to take ownership of the Seapoint Golf Club? Well, there's rumours, and Carr Golf obviously isn't going to say. Well, not to us anyway. After all, Cargolf is refusing to be interviewed by this programme. But before we speculate on the price, let's look at the site again. The club sits on 300 acres. This is highly valuable land. But imagine for a second if this was agricultural land and let's say it was to be sold at 10,000 an acre, 10,000 by 300 acres. That's 3 million euro. 3 million euro to put cattle out. And the cows might thank you too if you put them out to graze in the sea air with all of those beautiful views. I suppose that's a silly example. This site would never be used as agricultural land. What our story does, though, is it puts a price on Seapoint. It's not a very good example, but if it was to sell as agricultural land, it would sell for no less than €3 million. Euro. Cargolf did not pay €3 million. Euro. Cargolf probably had change out of two. And if you could sell this land as farmland for €3 million, what is it worth as a golf club? €6 million? £10 million? More? So how did Cargolf acquire Seapoint for less than two million? That's one question. Another question is how did Cargolf acquire this club for less than two million if it is worth ten million or God knows how much when the club itself was making a bid of one point seven million? It seems Cerberus didn't have confidence in the club's bid, but this is where the story becomes not just hard to understand, it is in fact inexplicable. It is inexplicable because a group of members got together and managed to convince a number of investors to loan the club 1.75 million euro or more if needed to buy the club's debt and save the club from a takeover. And here really is the crunch. The loan was being offered to the club at 0% interest for three years and at just 3% after that. But the members of the club didn't get any support from the club for this offer. This is very curious. Why did the club not support a bid from its own members to take over the club, especially when the members' proposal is said to be very close to what Cargolf ultimately paid? 
What was it that the directors liked about the car proposal? Why did the directors back car and why did the directors not support the members? Incidentally, agricultural land in Termin Fecum will sell much more likely at between twelve and 15,000 an acre. So at the upper end of the scale, you're talking about a site that would sell for €4.5 million euro if you were going to use it as farmland. But did Car Golf even pay half that for a golf club? How did this happen? That's what many of the club's members would like to know the answer to. Car Golf has refused our invitation to be interviewed this morning. The chairperson of the club... Jim McMorrow has not engaged with this programme, failing to respond to our messages. Mr McMorrow would be aware of uh, the questions we would like to ask him and we would be very interested to know why there was no support for the members' bid to take ownership of the club. We are also very interested to know why he thinks uh, the members of the club voted no confidence in the board and how he feels about that. Local Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, joins us now to talk about this. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. What do you make of all of this? Well, there's certainly a whole raft of questions that need answering, Mike, and I had spoke to some members, and um, to say they're, they're aggrieved is an understatement. Um, they, they had said that they the board itself and the club knew that service was coming down the line, you know, but they had two years to prepare for it um, and and didn't, you know, but when they, they saved Seapoint, the golf, the group, um, they got the, their pledges together to save the club, as you said earlier, to the bid that they put in was to a tune of 1.7 million, but they felt that the board never engaged with the members group and group and this and their bid and these were long term members you know of several decades that loved the club had a you know the, the local interest in the club wanted it to be there you know for yeah. for generations to come and wanted the members to 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 the, the club to be the property of the members um and they felt that the the, the board just wanted to support the car golf bid um and there's an odd thing as well that um the club was in this colossal debt, um, 3.6 million, mm. and they continued to spend more money. They spent an awful yeah. lot of money on the golf shop, and they brought in fully grown trees and had them. There was a fascinating thing uh, by all accounts how they got them planted. Uh, but the cost involved in all of that was huge at a time when, when they were in massive when debt. In death, yeah, when they were in massive debt, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the members then eventually voted no confidence in the board, but. Um, they also said that the board at that time was given the mandate to talk, just to talk to Cargolf and come back to the members. And they said they never did. And from that moment then, there was concerns. They, they reckoned that they were never given a fair hearing. The bid was never given serious consideration. And they felt that the board should have had more faith in the members, you know, and the, the, the bid that was never given serious Consideration. They felt that, despite it being sim- a similar amount that they suspect uh, the Carg Golf bid was, you know. Mm. But one member went on to say that the, there was um, a complete democratic deficit in making this decision. The club itself uh, came up with a, a scheme, uh, and it was going to loan money to the club, if you like, uh, at mm. rates of about ten percent. At this other uh, proposal that came from the membership uh, would have seen 0% interest for the mm. first three years. 
Uh, you would think that they would have jumped at it, uh, but they didn't. Uh, and I suppose that's their right. Uh, but they couldn't have acted alone. There was a, a vote, but there's a lot of questions uh, about that vote uh, because, as you say, a lot of the people are, are members and have been members since the club opened in 1995, I think. And now many of them are uh, retired uh, and of an age where they're not so internet savvy or maybe don't have two internet appliances in the house. And a vote took place through Zoom, apparently. Yeah, and as you say, a lot of members wouldn't be, you know, don't know how to operate Zoom, and, and w- but they were to come back to the members and they never did. But imagine being offered um, the money at 0% interest for three years and turning that down. You know, when it came from the members who the board would know have the right interest in the club, you know, and, and we'll see it right and any investment would be put straight back into the club and the membership will have all their rights and all of that guaranteed. There's so many questions and I think the fact that I suppose the question is why will Cargoz not come on to the local radio to talk about its takeover of the local golf club? I think Car Radio you came know. on to the local radio last night, uh, but they won't. Uh, they've declined to speak to this program, and I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, because of the questions that this program wants to ask of Cargoz. Well, that's what I'm saying. Why are they so unwilling to answer questions? Like, what what would they have to fear from that? That's the questions that people will now be asking. You know, why would they not come on? What what do they what do they fear from answering those questions? You know, and it would help to kind of, you know, answer questions for the members too who feel so aggrieved about the whole deal. You know, and the fact that their 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 offer or their bid wasn't given any serious consideration whatsoever. In fact, they just thought it was just whatever was going on, according to the members I spoke to. Their deal didn't wasn't coming into play at all. Whatever was going on. Do you think that the members are asking why their money isn't as good as Car Golf's money? Well, quite possibly because, as I said earlier, when you know the members went to the in the effort to save the club and to keep it, you know, the property of the members and to keep it as their club as it had been. Why any board would not look at that proposal? and say, well, hold on, along with that, they're offering us 0% interest, and it'll be kept within the members who've elected us to represent their best interests. You know, is, is there an argument... On their behalf. Is there an argument uh, that uh, the car golf bid was better because this is a, a, a bigger company? But you see, the thing is, we don't know, because they won't... I mean, you've said at the start, you've invited them onto your mm. show. But, they, again, but, they, but the point I was going to make is they've said that they're going to invest a, a million euro into the club now. Well, I mean, the, the members bid, they had said that, you know, monies would be directly, uh, you know, once they clear the loan, monies would be direct, directly put back into the club. I mean, you can't get more kind of, um, if somebody's a part of a club, they're going to look after the club for their membership, you know, and, you know, they're going to invest in the club and ensure that the members have all their rights, etc. So what better than, you know, an outsider coming in taken over where there's no guarantees of anything. They might have made promises, but who's to say that those promises might change as, you know, the years pass by. But once it's within the ownership of the membership, then you know that they're going to look after the golf club in the interests of the members. Mm. And it's, it's just, there's just, pl- just pl- so pl- many questions. Planning permission has been given previously 
uh, to six sites uh, on the club. Uh, I mean, uh, there was talk about uh, bringing in tennis courts, which would see another revenue stream. Um, there's mm. an amazing uh, amount of potential attached to this land. Mm. Uh, you quite often see hotels <laughs> and the like uh, alongside golf courses. Uh, mm. uh, if as we understand things, uh, if that is correct, um, this really was a, a very good deal. Uh, and I'm sure that the members will be asking uh, if their bid was in line with the bid mm. that was supported by the management. Why was their bid not supported? That's the biggest question of all as to why their bid wasn't supported, if it wasn't dissimilar to the, the car golf bid. I mean, that's that's the biggest question. And why um, a representative from the car group won't come on to explain why that was the case and leaves more questions. As I understand answered. it, uh, when this Zoom vote was planned, uh, a number of members asked the directors not to vote by Zoom and asked for a paper ballot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was refused or wasn't agreed to. Hmm. But they never came back to the members. You know, they they, they were told there that was the to board be had been given the mandate to talk to the car group or car golf and come back to the members and they never did. And it was from that point that someone said to me that they thought, right, this, there's something happening here, you know, that, and at that stage then it just went to where it is now and the members were left with a proposal um, that was, wasn't dissimilar to the car golf pro- proposal and they were left, just left completely out and they want to know why the board took that decision um, and they feel extremely let down. As I, and as I said, one person actually said to me that there was a complete democratic deficit when this decision was made. And if, you know, the benefits are there when they get out of debt with the member's proposal, I mean, all those same benefits that you outlined there would be there for the, the membership, you know, and the property within the ownership of the member, of the membership for years to come to develop as they see fit but keeping the interests of the members the priority. You know, when an outsider comes in, you just don't know what changes. Promises are all well and good at the start, and maybe they'll keep them, you don't know. But as it, time evolves, I mean, when people come in, they come in to make profit, you know, and the, God knows what will happen further down the line. But there's, I think the fact that they're, they're not willing to come on to local radio and talk about, and I think you'd said in your opening that they hired a PR company to get publicity on it, but why would they not? I mean, that's the question for me. Why are they so unwilling Mm. to answer these questions? I mean, what would they have to fear from it? I don't know. They said that they weren't going to come on to this programme because they were speaking on another programme, but uh, just a reminder... That doesn't make sense at all, you know. Well, it's over a week since we asked if they would like to speak to us on this programme. And if you've posed questions, is it the questions... If you pose questions that you want answers to, is it those questions that they don't want to give answers to? Well, Who knows? I mean, we won't know. To, you know it would be impossible. It would be impossible for me to answer that, obviously, uh, and unfortunately, mm. there isn't somebody here to answer that. Uh, but uh, the whole thing is very curious and very, very hard to understand. Uh, I think uh, we're going to try and get a, a little bit more understanding of it, uh, and we'll talk uh, to former chairman Mick Doyle in a moment uh, but I'm not sure what you think uh, is this a, a, a matter that is closed now because the deal has been done as such 
Well, I'd imagine once the deal is done, that's it, the deal is done. You know, members, whether they're they're still aggrieved or not, the deal's done now. You know, the, 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 the I mean, the question is still there. Why did the directors not support the members' bid? Mm. And that's the question that's to be answered to, you know. Um, and But once the deal is done, that's it. The paperwork is signed. There's, there's usually no, there is no going back on it now at this stage. Okay. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. As I say, uh, Mick Doyle will be with us in a, a couple of minutes. But thank you for talking to us uh, this morning and joining us on uh, the programme. Imelda Munster is a Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, long-standing member of Seapoint uh, Golf Club, former chairman Mick Doyle is on the line. Good morning, Mick. Thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, can you make any sense of uh, this acquisition for us? Uh, I can't, Michael, I'm afraid. I must say you, you give, you've given a very good summary of the situation. Um, it doesn't make sense. It is nonsensical. Um, and I, I really, the members have been ignored. Right. In this scenario, you know. Uh, and um, how do you feel about it? I'm very annoyed um, and appalled, really, about the, about, the, about the actions of the board. The board had promised at this controversial EGM that they would come back to the members. Um, I have a written, uh, actually a written legal confirmation of that. Um, and they've ignored the members, went along and concluded the deal. The deal, we don't know the details of it. Um, there's been no communication from the board since this uh, kind of announcement, um, and Caragolf have have just taken over. The EGM. That's when the vote took place. That's right. Yeah. Uh, did you vote? Uh, well, I did, but it was yeah. it was very controversial, Michael, in that it was by Zoom. Um, there was a large number of people attended, which was very unusual for our club. Um, the most re- recent. Um, EGM of the men's club, 147 people turned up, but at that particular EGM, we had fo- over 400 people turned up. So um, it's very controversial. The actual EGM, it was, um, it was, um, there was a lot of questions basically asked about that that EGM. But saying all that, um, the board confirmed on a number of occasions that they would bring the decision back to the members. Right. Uh, there was a vote, though. Uh, was that not an, an endorsement of the deal? Yeah, well, it wasn't. It was the, the board had insisted that this EGM was all about a mandate. They were looking for a way forward. And even if we we put the the, the votes aside, uh, the way forward was was meant to be uh, researched. Was meant to be the detail of it, an agreement was supposed to be ironed out or, or agreed, and this agreement was meant to come back to the members. So you weren't voting on the deal, you were voting to go into talks about a deal. That's right. That's correct. That's the understanding of the members. I do feel that that influenced the vote. Even if we we put the controversial vote aside, that would have influenced people on the night um, because they felt, well, this is at least some movement forward because there's no doubt, uh, you know, everyone has been worried about the club. Um, But... Uh, unfortunately, uh, that wasn't the case. They've they've decided to go ahead, and on the night of the EGM, when the second vote, a vote of the men's club was taking place of no confidence in the board, they 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 tell us then that the deal was done. Right. Um, do 
Do you know of uh, people who didn't vote, who weren't able to attend uh, because... I Yes, sorry, I do, Michael. Sorry for st- for, for inter- uh, jumping in there. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I do. There's, there was It was quite controversial because of the fact, I think Imelda mentioned there that older members, and there are older, mem- older members within the club, they, they would not be, uh, you know, internet savvy. Um, um, and that's why the, 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 the kind of paper vote was requested. It was denied. Um, so I do know quite a few members that couldn't log in, weren't able to vote, and, and uh, you know, had difficulties. And you'd have a, a lot of couples who would be members, husband and wife, who'd be both members of uh, the club. Uh, but if they were to vote, they would have had to have voted on two different devices. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And that would have been a problem for some as well. It could have been, Michael. It could have been. Um, it, it, but it's all down to it's all down to transparency and clarity. And at that particular time, I think we could have had an in-person uh, meeting. We could have allowed uh, um, paper voting. But of course, that is all was all kind of based on the on the on the basis that uh, they would come back to the members with a finalised deal or a deal that they could recommend. Uh, you know, so so most uh, all were were expecting a second EGM. We were all disappointed that now I wasn't part of this Save Sea Point group, but we were all disappointed that this uh, group were not taken seriously. Uh, their offer, which was 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 real, was was very commercial was allowing the members to eventually take back the club and, and own the club uh, continuously, was, was, really, was really ignored by, by basically four members of a, of a board. It's very hard to understand, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really uh, uh, um, unbelievable, really. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a travesty, a local travesty for the, for the, for the area and for Drogheda, I think. Yeah, uh, many of uh, the members would have been uh, playing golf uh, in Sea Point since 1995. Are you a member that long yourself? I'm, I joined in 1993 when it opened oh. first. Right, OK. Uh, so the cl- the members bought it over then in 1996, yeah. three years later. Yeah. So I've been a member since that time. There's tw- like We have nearly 28 years of history. Yeah. Um, what, I be, what, what I would be personally annoyed about is that the club will be dissolved as part of this Agreement. Mm. This is seemingly something that Caragolf have insisted on. I don't blame Caragolf for the whole scenario, but mm. they've been disingenuous on a few things, I believe. Uh, but the club has been dissolved, mm. which, which, which is a travesty. Yeah. And it's obviously in your blood, if you like. Uh, nobody would know more about the club than you uh, as a member for the last 28 years. How did they get into so much debt? Well, it does go back to... It goes back to the heady days of... of, of, of um, of 2005, 2007, uh, Michael, I'll be honest with you, uh, uh, one of the committees unfortunately decided to spend €3 million Euros on the extension of the clubhouse uh, when I believe it wasn't needed at the time, but obviously uh, democracy won and we went ahead and, and we have to stand by that decision. Um, I was part of, of, of a group that negotiated a deal with our bankers at the time, uh, but obviously, like like every other kind of commercial entity and, and golf club our loans were sold and sold to Cerberus Cerberus to be fair are our debt holders um, and they have decided to sell on this loan uh, but we have no evidence of that we have no evidence of any, any transaction at the moment hmm. 
Okay, well, there's obviously a lot of disgruntled members. Uh, are, are the members uh, looking uh, for some forum to ask questions uh, about what happened uh, or some uh, way of uh, trying to get answers to those questions? Well, like you, Michael, uh, we can write. you can write to the board. I've been writing to the board for the last two years and uh, you're just completely ignored. Um, I've sent in queries about this particular deal uh, I won't get a reply, unfortunately. Um, so that's the situation. Basically, this board of four people have ignored the members and are continuing to ignore the members. OK. We leave it there for the moment, Mick. Thank you. Thanks Thank very you much. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank that's, you. Uh, Mick Doyle, former chairman and uh, a member of uh, the Sea Point Golf Club, as he was telling us, since 1993. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Cabinet Subcommittee on COVID will meet and decide on what to do next. And I think you'd expect that they will be doing something because of the increase in the number of cases. 3,805 new cases yesterday could reach as many as 12,300 a day in late December. That, at least, is according to the Institute uh, for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is based in Washington. It's an incredible figure that's being reported on in the Irish Times. The Cabinet Subcommittee uh, will be looking at things like COVID certs and whether they should be extended to other areas as has been suggested by Neffet so that if you're going into your gym or your library or for a bag of chips that you'd be asked for a COVID cert, they'll be looking at boosters for all of us and they'll be looking at another recommendation from Neffet which is that we all should work from home where possible. Let's uh, speak uh, now uh, to... Paddy Malone, who is uh, the PRO for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you, Paddy. Morning, Michael. Well, what do you make of all of this? Well, it's not where any of us want to be, that's for sure. Mm. Um, It's worrying. And when we think back to what happened last Christmas, when the shackles, we we, we did relax and we probably relaxed too much. And there was too many people who suffered family deaths and everything else as a consequence in January. Mm. Uh, I think the government should be cautious. Uh, and I think every one of us has a duty to ourselves, to our family and to our community to be as cautious as we possibly can be. OK, we have a little over a month before Christmas. It's possible if we continue on this road that they'll have to go into lockdown for Christmas. Well, that's why I'm saying we need to do everything we can as soon as we can. So, you know, the problem with lockdown is, you know, you need to resurrect the pup or the TWSS, or a combination of both. Um, there is a finite pot of money, no matter how much people think that governments don't, don't, can't run out of money, they can. Mm. Um, and being realistic about it, um, you know, the, the economy can't afford to go into, uh, into that sort of a lockdown. And I think there's something that we've learned over the last 18 months, that mental awareness and mental health are just as critical in government decision-making, or should be. Mm. I don't think they have been in the past, but I think mental health and mental, mental well-being are critical as well. Okay, I mean, but there's a finite uh, amount It's a of finite line, and I, would not, I do not envy the government making no, that decision. No, no, absolutely not. But there's a finite uh, amount of ICU beds as well. Uh, yesterday, uh, there were 106 people in ICU, and I've heard it said that if that goes to 150, you're looking at lockdown. Yeah, 
Um, and that's despite the fact that the government has increased the number of ICU beds, uh, but obviously not enough to meet uh, another wave of the size that we got in the past. So that balancing act is, is extremely difficult. And I would say that we should err on the side of caution. So You'd you favour this idea of COVID certs, would you? Yeah, I, I would think anything that we can do to bring in common sense. Now, the problem with some of this is that legislation would probably be required in yes. some areas. Mm-hmm. And, and then you hit a, a logjam of civil liberties and everything else. But I think, you know, listening to uh, members, um, they have seen a, a fall off in, in trade in the restaurant and in the, in the, in the, in the pub trade oh. over the last week to 10 days. There's, there's definitely been a, um, a, a ratcheting down and they were expecting it to go the opposite way mm. between getting parties and weddings and also the pickup for Christmas. It's, it's not happening yet. Yeah. And I think people are, are applying a certain amount of common sense. That's it. People are afraid to go out. There I seems, to, are, there seems think, to be two yeah. cohorts of people, really, though, doesn't there? Uh, those who are afraid to go out and those uh, who have no fear. And uh, it's like a, a virtual universe. Yeah, and I think the problem you have with those that have no fear is it's the damage they're doing to everybody else. Um, they're making a bad situation incredibly bad, incredibly worse. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's everyone's civic duty, as I said, to do the best they can for their fellow man. And I was listening to the news this morning with, with, with interviews of people saying, well, you know, I'm okay, I'm young and I'm fit and I can take it. Yeah, so what? Your mother isn't, and your father aren't as young. You know, you're, you're, and you're, if, you're, if you're that young, your grandparents aren't, aren't fit enough to take it. Mm. Uh, so but at the same time, can you blame young people when they're told it's okay? Uh, no, I, no, I, no, I know, think you can mm. blame young people. I think that's an irresponsible attitude, and it needs to be shouted at from the rooftop. And what do you mean? To close the nightclubs, or what is it? Like, because they're being told it's okay to do it. They are being advised to take two antigen tests uh, a yeah, week. Well, if they're doing uh, that, yeah. at least it's, it's part of the way. But I do think that every young person should be fully vaccinated. I don't think there's an excuse for not being fully vaccinated. Mm. Uh, it's just not there. I well, you follow the Austrian example, and I think parts of Germany are pretty much uh, the same, uh, where if you want to do anything, you need to be either vaccinated or immune to COVID because you've had well, it recently. I think your problem here is that you've got civil liberties and we have a certain, we have a written constitution and we have certain things that the government can't do. Um, and on balance, that's no harm. You know, I mean, I think over the years, we had a fledgling democracy starting off in the 1920s. And even with the 37 constitution flaws and all, we do need breaks on, on, on control. So you wouldn't like to see somebody arrested in a shop because uh, they didn't have a COVID cert? No, I would not. But I would mm. like to see the shopkeeper having the right to say you're not coming in. Yeah. Because that's what they're going to do in Austria. Apparently, they yeah, have yeah. The and in the states, you're not in, in the states. Yeah. If you show up in a, in a, if your employer has more than a hundred people, he can tell you to, he can tell you he can fire you. Yeah. Well, if you um, tell somebody that they're not going to come in, there's also the chance uh, that you're going to get a box. Yeah, I mean, look, look. I mean, it, the, the, there seems to be a very uh, aggressive uh, attitude towards uh, those uh, who are in favour of public health from those who are not. Yeah, I, I, and it's it's a sad reflection on those that cannot listen to the concerns of older and and and, and I would say wiser people. Um, look, none of us want to go through lockdowns. None of us want to shut the place down. Nobody wants to say to somebody you can't have one. Mm. That's nobody wants to do that. But we've got to think of the long term. We've got to think of the consequences for everybody else. That's that's critical. Uh, and this, you know. There is no excuse for not not looking after your neighbour. Mm-hmm.
you know, and if you go back to the, the Bible and you go back to Christianity, you know, love thy neighbor, you know, and you treat your neighbor as you would your enemy, you know, there is nothing but common sense that would say you've got to take care of yourself and your friend. Um, and I just hope that people aren't finding themselves in a couple of months' time, young people realizing that they're at a funeral of granny or, or even their parents, and it's because of their stupidity. And that is the cold reality of the situation. Okay. And you can't reverse that. You can't reverse no, that fact. Obviously not. Paddy, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us okay. uh, this morning. Thank you very Thanks much. Well. Paddy Malone is PRO for the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Thanks to John, who was on the phone to us. John says. It's a, a desperate situation for the members of uh, the Sea Point Golf Club who paid their hard-earned money to become members and they gave so much to the club uh, and for them to have to see this happen now, desperate, he says. Uh, he says he's thinking also of those who have passed on, who gave so much to building up the club. I find it very concerning that the new owners won't go on your show to answer questions, says John. Thank you indeed, uh, John, uh, for your call to the programme this morning. Uh, another uh, call to us, a WhatsApp message from Mary, who asks if Jim Wells will ever learn. The UK don't need uh, the six little counties. The government of the Republic can't even run the county that they do have. She says if she was Jim Wells, she'd accept the deal from the British government. The UK must be sick of listening to them giving out. Thank you indeed. That's all we have time for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.